This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The oceans across the planet are facing some serious and significant challenges and change. Environmental columnist and the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, Lawrence Gunther, has identified seven to uh, do a little bit of fear-mongering this morning. Of course, Lawrence is the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. Oh, man, I feel like the Grim Reaper. <laughs> you know, Lawrence, you're just being real, and being real is a good thing. I have uh, steeled myself and sturdied myself to jump into this, starting with issue number one on your list, deep sea mining. Well, Dave, you and I talked about these potato-sized, mineral-rich nodules that they're finding on the uh, ocean floor, right, the bottom of the ocean floor, and and they're these are full of minerals that we need for batteries, right? So, you know, there's a 1720 countries that said, well, we should think hard about before we we send these giant bulldozers and robotic vacuum cleaners down there and, and stir up the bottom. And what's it mean for the sea life? What's it mean for the ocean floor? And, uh, and will it compete with Canadian mining uh, battery interests in other parts of, of Canada? So Canada, along with 20 other countries, has asked for a pause on all this. Norway is moving ahead with their uh, their mining of minerals off their, their coastline and their territorial seawaters. So I, I think it's going to happen. You know, there is a race and, and there is money to be made. And these things are just sitting down there like little blobs of money, right? Like gold, only it's not gold. It, it's just a matter of time. Mm. Resource development in general and the ocean pose quite a few questions. One of those being offshore wind power generation, wind turbines, largely cited by folks uh, who are advocating for renewables as an incredible, excellent option to create renewable energy. But there is some pushback. Why? Well, you know, the United States has, has pushed to get 30 gigawatts of wind-generated power by 2030, but they're facing some issues for sure. They're um, finding, you know, where they put these giant windmills on these floating rafts and they anchor them down to the seafloor. They're not going far offshore. They're going far enough to not bother anybody and make sure they have regular steady winds year-round, but they also need to service these things. They're putting these these windmills farms, giant, you know, many, many, many windmills in the same areas where people like to go fishing. Commercial fi people go fishing there. Recreational fishing go there. I'm not talking the giant ships that go into the deep sea. I'm talking people who make a living with their own boats and go out for the day and come back. There's also issues about, you know, all that uh, activity uh, taking place around where the whales hang out, right? So, you know, about ship strikes, when you have all these ships out there, boats servicing these windmills, uh, you're creating more incidents, uh, potential ship strikes to whales. And we know the northern right whales are are suffering. And uh, there's a lot of strip ship strikes and, and entanglements in gear. So there's issues there for sure. 
But Canada's, you know, just signed a deal with Newfoundland and said, you go ahead and and create your windmill generation farms. You can have 100% of the profit and you have 100% of control over where they take place and how they're going to be installed. So Newfoundland's going going to go gangbusters on that. You know, they see the end for their oil production, offshore oil production off Newfoundland. That's going to be a loss of money soon. So they need to replace it with something. Lawrence, what about... Uh, impacts in terms of warming streams. So, for example, the El Nino stream taking place in the Pacific Ocean, I think some of those impacts are already starting to be felt uh, uh, across the country right now. But where where are you landing on ocean warming as a major issue going in going into and through the year? You know, we, we always hear about the 1.5 degree uh, warming of the atmosphere. Oceans have warmed by about four degrees, so they, they've already exceeded that by a long distance. Um, this problematic in terms of um, just plain algae, right? When you have so much algae growing from the stimulation of the growth from the warmth and the nutrients, you know, it it sort of creates a less um, harmonious place for sea life to live when it gets all gooky and green and icky. So there, there's problems there. You know, yeah, we have El Nino the last couple of years, but we've also had a, a, a blob, a warm blob out in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of North America. It's been on and off since 2013. And uh, this isn't going away. You, you know, it's coral reefs are bleaching. Uh, it's causing all sorts of disruption in the in the life cycles of different sea life when you have all this warm water and, and the... Um, the, the capture of carbon sink from the uh, ocean snow, there's a lot of knock-on effects from just heating up the ocean, the solidification of the ocean. So there's a ton of issues there that that um, are, are caused by just ocean warming that we're just learning about. Let's get to the salt factor mm-hmm. of the ocean because it is indeed salt water. So let's start on one side, and that's salt water intrusion. How is that manifesting as an issue? You know, we've been listening to uh, storm surges and these rogue waves uh, rolling up on the coast of California, washing away RV trailers and cars and tents and, you know, just incredibly big waves. Rogue waves, are we're learning about those and, and we're happening more often. There's storm surges as well. You know, we hear about high tides backed up by hurricanes and strong winds. Salt water is extremely corrosive when it comes on land, concrete, cars, anything metal or concrete is impacted significantly. There's also uh, issues with freshwater contamination and uh, rot of roots, you know, for uh, crops such as uh, you know, coconuts and, and and things on island economies, sugar and things like that. And so, you know, it, it yeah, it, it's driving insurance costs up for people who live around the coast, but there's also all sorts of uh, environmental and economic impacts of, of salt water intrusion. Of course, the flip side is that as the glaciers are melting, you get desalinization. So what's the impact of desalinization? There's a lot of uh, countries that have, you know, that don't have a lot of freshwater supply. You know, I'm thinking Middle East, Africa, Arab countries, and and Israel, they've mastered the uh, industry of taking intensive energy and taking the salt out of ocean water and then you turning it into fresh water. So they're, they're actually mining and, and, and creating fresh water out of salt water. 
the problem is it's it's very energy intensive. So there's uh, if you're using electricity or any other sort of energy, you got to create that somehow, and that can lead to CO two, car uh, greenhouse gases. A lot of hot waters re return to the ocean from the process, and all that salt that they're taking out of the ocean water to make the fresh water has to go somewhere, and that goes back into the ocean. The salt, the minerals, all the other things that are in the ocean water in a very concentrated form is returned to the ocean. So you can see where these desalinization plants are established, these giant black sort of clouds of ocean water that are sort of just surrounding the, these desalinization plants, usually downstream or down current from where the plants are. And uh, it, it, it's, it's a pretty non-friendly way of, of getting fresh water. But if you have the money, and uh, you have the need, you'll do what you have to do, right, to, to give water to your people and your agriculture. One of the uh, items you've got here is one that always captures the imagination of news stations and people online, and that is irregular sea life migration. One of the big stories uh, that's been running in a few of my Miami circles has been the number of orca killer whales floating around the Miami Beach area, where that is not an area where you expect orcas or killer whales typically. So why do you believe that sea life migration is posing such a big issue? You know, we have a lot of uh, sea life that's off the coast of Canada, and we have the longest coastline of any any country in the world that has, you know, habituated and evolved in a way that, you know, appreciates winter, cold water off the Pacific and Atlantic and uh, Arctic oceans. And it can live with that and, and, and enjoys that and, and thrives in that situation. Then you go a little bit further south towards the equator and you have a whole nother set of sea life that lives in hot, warm water year round. You know, it, it's just totally different. As the oceans get warmer, that sea life in the south moves north because now it's got new habitat to uh, explore because the water's getting warmer. So you've got sea turtles coming further north. You've got great white sharks coming further north. You've got all sorts of sea life moving into the territory of what was the principal territory of our, our salmon and, and crabs and so on. You know, even a small change in temperature can create a difference in, in how the base of the food chain is created. You look at the snow crab situation off the coast of Alaska, this is the second year in a row there's been no fishing for snow crab ever, ever uh, announced. It used to be one of the richest commercial crab fisheries in the world. And uh, and because of over a billion snow crabs dying of, of, of starvation two years ago, and again this year, just because the food chain has collapsed uh, mm. down there for, and what they need. So we're seeing these huge changes. Even the salmon off the West Coast, Dave, they're used to eating a very fatty little minnow that's being replaced by more aggressive uh, small fish from the South. The, the Chinooks are eating them, the coho salmon are eating them off the West Coast, but they don't have the fat content that these salmon need. Need to grow fast you know these things grow within five years they become you know from juvenile to adult you need you know high test food for that sort of growth process and by switching over to these more numerous southern small fish prey fish they're not getting that energy source so the, the they're just smaller leaner salmon now Lawrence, you want to wrap this up on a positive, and thank goodness you do, because I'm feeling the doom and gloom here. Aquaculture, an expression that I've never heard before. Why is that a positive? 
Well, you know, we have the finfish aquaculture off the West and East Coast, and there's some good news off the West Coast. They're starting to pull the licenses from these aquaculture farms, you know, these where they just put pens out there and fill them up with small salmon and dump food in. They're causing all sorts of issues for the wild salmon populations. These coasts, maybe we'll see that on the East Coast. Some of these salmon farms are now being brought on shore into closed containment aquaculture. But on the positive side, Dave, the whole idea of growing kelp, and oysters and clams and uh, expanding on sea aquaculture is really picking up, you know, they're going to use uh, this uh, kelp for creating uh, plastics, you know, uh, bioplastics for creating uh, food for cattle and other farm animals and food for ourselves possibly as well. And it's a great way of storing and capturing a carbon, right? All that carbon that lands in the ocean that settles down and sinks through the ocean, it gets absorbed by all this uh, aquaculture of, of, of kelp and, and locked in there. And uh, so it's a great thing for the planet as well. It's a great way to make money. Really, it's just taking the nutrients out of the ocean and cleaning the ocean and turning it into beautiful green kelp that the sea life can enjoy and that we can enjoy as well. Lawrence, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. You can find that show Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. In 60 seconds, storms are still brewing in British Columbia. Alex Smythe will have that in the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Gains in telecommunication and energy stocks helped Canada's main stock index tick higher to start the week. Toronto's TSX index gained 71 points yesterday to close at 21,061. U.S. markets were closed for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but in Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 282 points. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.11 cents U.S. StatsCan is set to release its December Consumer Price Index report today. Economists expecting Canada's annual inflation rate will have ticked up last month due to a smaller drop in gasoline prices compared to December of a year ago. The inflation rate for November was 3.1%. And Loblaw has confirmed it is no longer offering discounts of up to 50% on items nearing expiry at the grocery store. A spokeswoman says Loblaw is instead offering 30% off on last day items across the board. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Of course, Karen sends that in a couple of hours ago. So you do know the inflation number now for December in Canada, 3.4% year over year, 3.4% year over year, the inflation data in December. Okay, let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, there's a storm brewing in B.C., uh, yeah, Dave, and uh, not just any storm. Uh, this one is known as a boom or bust system. So really what that comes down to is the fact that this is uh, highly volatile. It could lean one way or the other. There could be uh, copious amounts of moisture and snow in uh, the forecast over the next couple of days, or it could be rather mild and timid. So um, as we look into different areas in, in and around uh, southern BC, 
BC. You can find in Vancouver Island, there's going to be a mix more of the rain and the snow because of the warm temperatures that are still out in the Pacific, as we heard Lawrence talk, uh, mention previously. That's really kind of causing the conflict because this storm system is meeting with the Arctic air that's already in the area. So that's what's providing this massive storm system to take place. Now, under boom conditions, if we look at Vancouver, you can see between 10 to 15 centimeters of snowfall by the time uh, the system is over into Wednesday. Now, if it is in, uh, if it's a boom system as well, you'll see places like Langley, BC project to get up to 25 centimeters of snow, while Abbotsford could reach 30 centimeters. Now, if it's a bus system, that doesn't mean there's not going to be snow in the area. It's just going to be less of it because even in Vancouver, there could still be upwards of 10 centimeters with a bus system. So regardless of whether there is a boom or a bust, if you're in Vancouver, if you're in southern BC, be prepared for a lot of snow in your forecast starting tonight yeah. into tomorrow. Yeah, 10 centimeters in Vancouver constitutes a lot of snow. So yeah, yeah. be ready for sure. Alex, thank you for this. Thank you, Dave. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk coming up after the break. In 2024, what are the trends and challenges going to be for people with disabilities? Rabia Hadar has some predictions. You'll hear them. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.